0: Many people think that Daniel didn't write the book of Daniel. And part of the reason that they think that is this chapter and many of the chapters that relate to the vision that Daniel has. Their argument, their criticism is that no one could know with such specificity the future, and therefore it had to be written after the events took place. Well, I have a couple of responses to that. Number one, there is one who knows the future just as well as he knows the past. And it is called the king of glory. God who gave Daniel the vision and interpreted for him is the one who knows the future. And so we can rely on it. But even if you take the critics and say, well, it wasn't written back in the 500 BCs, but more like the 120. BC's, Daniel is still going to have no, several other predictions of the future. One of those is the coming of the Messiah. So even if it was written as late as the critics say, there are still future passages to co- take place, which do take place in our past, but there are still more future predictions yet to come. And so just as I believe Daniel wrote And I believe that not because I am so smart, but because Jesus said, have you not read what Daniel the prophet said? So Daniel, the prophet wrote the book because Jesus said he wrote the book. So that's kind of enough information for me. But again, even if we accept the criticism that it had to have been written later, there are still things to come that we will see. And so let's take a look at the eighth chapter of Daniel it says in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision. And while I was looking, I was in the city of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision and I myself was beside the Uli canal. Then I lifted up my eyes and behold, an a iman- and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of this canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. And while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of the heaven. And so this is Daniel's second vision, and we see... As I said, it's the subsequent one. And it takes place, the first one takes place in the first year of Belshazzar king. And this one takes place in the third year. So a couple of years passes. This gives us, again, some additional information that the other visions of both Nebuchadnezzar and then of Daniel gives us more information about so that we might have a better understanding. But it is written at the time when the Babylon is still the ruling empire. So it's not like he's writing, okay, this took place and Babylon suffered, but it's taking place when Medo-Persia was in power. So that's when he's seeing this vision and he sees it not in the capital of Babylon, but he sees it in Susa, which is a satellite city. Now it seems to indicate that Daniel isn't there in his vision, he's there. But some say, well, he may have been on a diplomatic mission or whatever. I kind of think that's somewhat unlikely since Belshazzar didn't really know about Daniel till the night he lost power. So it's unlikely that he sent him on any kind of diplomatic mission. But we see that, um, and so my belief is that the entire vision is he's seen it from this place. I'm going to kind of explain what's taking place, but know that in a few verses, the angel is going to explain what takes place. So I read the end of the chapter, so I kind of, it it helps. But rather than reading it and then going to the next and then trying to compare I think it's just quicker if I talk about it, but then compare my analysis with what the angel says. And so what we see here is the goat with two horns, one larger. A horn usually represents a seat of power, authority. And so with the two horns, we're going to see that that represents the Medo-Persian empire. And it says one horn is larger. The second one, Persia, always had the greater influence and power in the Medo-Persian Empire. So this vision shows that there's this duality of authority, but the Persians, the second one, had the greatest. But then there's this goat that comes and is enraged. And even though no one up until this point could withstand the Medo-Persian Empire, that is able to go... North, south, east, and no one can stop it. All of a sudden, this goat comes and is enraged against this ram with two horns. It has a single horn. And it says that he travels without touching ground, which means he's moving quickly. We're told, and history shows us, that it's the Greek empire that takes down the Medo-Persian empire. And Alexander the Great is able to subdue the Medo-Persian Empire within just a couple of years. So much so that at the age of 33, it is told that Alexander sat depressed, saying there are no more worlds to conquer. And he had great power, and, uh, and he was viewed as someone of of great authority. He dies quickly. Some say he died of an illness. Others say that one of his generals, Cassandra poisoned him, but whatever it may be, he rises to great power and then dies. Then verse nine says this, out of one of the horns came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. Now the beautiful land is considered Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression the host Will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? And while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Okay, what's that all about? Well, we are told in history, which is confirmed by this vision that on Alexander's death, after some period of, of intrigue and murder, his four generals divide up his territory. And, um, One of the generals was named Cassander, as I mentioned before. And he was given over to rule Greece and its region. The the uh, ruled over Asia Minor. Seleucus ruled over Syria and Israel. And Ptolemy ruled over Egypt. So the four generals divided up their territory. So that's the four horns. But then it says there's a little horn that pops up. Out of them, this little horn is believed to be Antiochus the Fourth, who called, who's been called Antiochus the Fourth of Epiphanes, which means the glorious or illustrious one or the magnified one, and he kind of calls himself that so much so that there are coins that uh, put his uh, likeness on it and claim that he was a manifestation of God. So he claims and he boasts of the power. And then we see that in his rule, that uh, how he came to power was he murdered his brother. So already you can tell he's a really nice guy and he received bribes for the appointment of the high priest. Um, And then when somebody gave him additional money, he took that high priest position away and gave it to another. now, That's not an authority position for him or any non-Jew to have. The high priest position was based on birth and determination by God of the tribe of the Levites. But we can see how, in essence, religion got so syncretized with power that everybody looked to the ruling authorities say, well, give me the power of religion over this. And they bribed him. And then when the money wasn't enough, bribed him again. And so part of the reason we see when it says, because of transgressions of the host, we can tell, in essence, God is going to judge his people for treating his people and his access to him with such contempt. Now, Antiochus had an agenda. He just didn't want to rule, like say, for instance, the Romans were satisfied with conquering a territory and you can keep your religion and you can keep your practices. Just send us the money. Antiochus wanted to reshape Israel. So he demanded that Greek culture and Greek customs be adopted. He refused to allow them to become circumcised and any other types of things that would be a part of of Jewish custom and religion. Uh, so not only did that uh, when he lost the battle, he came back to seize Jerusalem a second time and set an idol of Zeus in the sanctuary. And then he took swines and sacrificed them then he took the juices of the pigs and sprinkled it all over the temple. And thus, sacrifices were stopped because of that desecration. It is also believed that Antiochus was responsible for the murder of about 100,000 Jews. Now it says that when the temple was desecrated, that there would, the offerings would be ceased, for a period of 2,300 evenings and mornings. So there's kind of some disagreement. How do you interpret that? Some would say, well, it's 2,300 days. If you hold that position, there seems to be sufficient historical evidence to say that that's an okay position because there was a period of time that from the the orders to the to the rededication of the temple took that about a time, about seven years. And then others say, no, what it's talking about is 2,300 evenings and mornings sacrifices. So we're talking about 1,650 well, 1, days, but 2,300 sacrifices. And that there seems to be additional support to say, that that's when the sacrifices actually stopped and whatever. I don't, I'm not smart enough to know which it is, but I do know the temple was desecrated, and I do know the sacrifices were stopped, and I do know that it was re-cleansed, and there is a holiday that the Jews celebrate called Hanukkah, where there was the Festival of Lights where it said, that there wasn't enough oil to keep the candles burning uh, after the dedication of the temple. And so it burned for eight days longer than it should have until the proper oil came. And you find that in the book of Maccabees and whatever. The book of Maccabees, as far as Protestants are concerned, is not the word of God. It has some historical evidence. But I will say that apparently Jesus... Celebrated that custom because the New Testament says that Jesus went to Jerusalem during the Festival of Lights, which was this festival. So Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, if you will, even though we don't. So that's kind of the historical setting. We have the Greek nation subduing the Persian, Mino Persian Empire. Very quickly, we see Alexander dying for general's rule. The one that's significant to Israel is Antiochus and how he treats the people. So let's say if all that comes into agreement with the interpretation. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep, and my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now this is kind of, huh, when you hear this, because he's talking about the appointed time of the end, and all that I've just discussed happened a few thousand years ago. And from our perspective, that ain't the end. The scriptures oftentimes will give us a dual view. You'll hear about, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, it'll talk about the children of Rachel crying. And it talks about an event during Isaiah's time, but it also talks about an event during Jesus's coming. So oftentimes there is a duality to a prediction. The best way to kind of explain that in a vision is if you look out at a mountain range and you see two mountain peaks from here, it may appear to be the same mountain range. But when you get there, there may be a mountain, a valley and another mountain but you see them as one. And so what I think here is that there is, what's going to happen in the time of Antiochus is going to show us a picture of what is going to happen in the future, in the end times. So the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So if you believe that this was written before even the Persian empire became powerful. That's a prediction. If you're saying he wrote it later, uh, it's obvious. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represents four kingdoms, which will arise from his nation. Although not with his power in the latter period of their rule, When the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many While they are at ease. And he will even oppose the prince of princes, and he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. And so we are given even more information about this one who is going to rebel against the people of God. While it fits Antiochus the fourth. And Antiochus dies of an illness. He doesn't die at the hands of a human. And is told that he dies a very painful death. This also gives us a picture of someone who almost sounds like Antiochus. And his name is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist will be shrewd and powerful. And will receive power not of his own and he will desecrate the temple, and he will, if he will, murder the Holy ones. And so we see, just as, for instance, Joseph is talked about as a type of Christ, and David is a type of Christ, and Daniel is a type of Christ. We also see in the Scriptures a type of Antichrist. Um, those uh, characteristics that will show us who he is. And so we are told the vision is just not a dream. It's just not, he didn't have pepperoni pizza and have a bad night that the vision is true, but it is something that uh, pertains to many days in the future. One of the things I didn't mention, which again, is interesting about this, this passage in in this portion of the scriptures. He's told that it is to keep this vision secret. Chapter one of Daniel is written in Hebrew. Chapter two through seven in Daniel was written in Aramaic, which was the international language of the time. Chapter eight and follow is written again in Hebrew. And so it may seem that chapter one is written for the people of God. The other is written for everybody. And the rest of it is written for the people of God. And so part of the, if you will, keeping this secret until later is not to use the international language, but the language of the people. The night Daniel was exhausted and sick for days. and you can if if you take this if you take this vision seriously it can shake you because the people of god are going to suffer and the places of god are going to suffer now some of their suffering is probably deserved but some of the people are going to suffer and they didn't deserve it just because the priesthood is up for sale doesn't mean all the people were corrupt but all the people will suffer. And Daniel takes this and understands this. Kind of in the same way, we Christians, when we read and try to interpret and try to misinterpret or reinterpret the book of Revelation, kind of our attitude is, because most people have been taught, rightfully or wrongfully, that we're not here. That we're raptured out of here, therefore it doesn't concern us well, even if we're raptured out of here and it doesn't concern us, it ought to concern us because there are going to be people left. If we're not left, who are going to suffer under this type of rule. It should shake us, if you will, not our faith, but our concern for people. It's not, well, doesn't affect me. It's not going to affect Daniel because it's not going to happen for many days from now. Daniel is going to be, in the presence of God before any of this happens. But because Daniel loves his people, it shakes him. So he was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. Daniel takes a realistic approach. God has ordained something and it's going to take place. And it bothers me, and it sickens me, and exhausts me. But I have a job to do. It's kind of like, again, we Christians who talk about, well, Jesus is coming again, so just let's hang out. We're kind of guilty of what the disciples was when Jesus left. We're staring up into heaven. Not doing anything. One of the pastors once said, they were so heavenly-minded; were no earthly good. Daniel understands the vision and takes it seriously, but he gets back not to his business, but the king's business. And we should be about doing the king's business. And that's not the president or the governor; that's the king of kings and Lord of lords, because we are his ambassadors in this world. We are foreign aliens in a foreign land and we should be about the king's business whether we understand all that he has for us or not but i was astonished at the vision and there was none to explain it notice even after the explanation he doesn't quite understand it and even after the explanation i don't quite understand it i don't understand why We're told certain things that are happening in history, but it appears to be things that will happen many days in the future. But I do know this when it's all revealed, we'll look back at this and say, I don't understand why there was a debate. It's clear what God had said, His symbols, which we may not have understood at the time, are clear. But even whether they're clear or unclear. We need to be doing the king's business. And the king's business is what did he tell us to do? Go therefore unto all the nations. Testifying. Making disciples. Baptizing. Teaching them. Not just some of the things of God. But the whole counsel of God. It's a shame that when children grow up in church that when they leave to go off to college or off to a job or whatever their faith is still only childlike. We didn't mature them. We are we seem to be so interested in conversions Because we can mark our Bible and say, I got that one, I got that one. Aren't I a great witnesser for God? It's kind of like the person that we uh, would find fault with, who has child after child after child, but never raises them, never cares for them, just expects somebody else to do it. And that's oftentimes what we do when it comes to spiritual matters. We are all excited about giving birth to someone, but Hopefully somebody else will care for them. That's not the plan of Jesus. The king's business is to teach and preach all that he has taught us. So that when these things happen, while it may emotionally shake us, it does not shake us in our faith because he's already told us what's going to happen. And he has told us what's going to happen, even if we don't totally understand it. And we told us the type of person who's going to come and have this terrible influence, that he's a deceiver, that he doesn't have that he will magnify his own self. That he will even oppose the Prince of Princes. But just as Antiochus died by an illness and without human agency, the Antichrist will be taken out by the power of God. And this is not a battle of, oh, maybe God might prevail because he's just maybe slightly more powerful than Satan. This is not a struggle at all. One angel. Not even an archangel. One angel is directed to take Satan and throw him in the pit. This is not a struggle against good and evil. This is the unveiling of God's plan for the world and his people. So, I did not give you a very good explanation of this passage. I fully realized that. Because if I did, it would take us many, many hours. Everybody wants to go home and watch the football games and eat lunch and do whatever. So I understand I don't have hours and hours. But even if I spent hours and hours, there would still be questions I would have and you would have. My job isn't to tell you what happened. My job is to say, you know, I guess I'm going to have to research that more. I guess I'm going to have to read Daniel a little more. I'm going to have to read some of the other visions and some of the things that are going to happen later in the book and maybe read without understanding what's happening in the book of Revelation so that I might know what God is doing rather than Pastor Joe or some other person telling me what's going to happen, that I might know. So that I might have not childlike faith, but knowledge of what God is doing. Because let's face it, when difficult times come, and it doesn't have to be the Antichrist, it could be persecution, it could be illness, it could be a crisis of faith. I'm here to tell you, you will not get through that because Pastor Joe has faith. Or your mom or dad had faith. Because of your faith that God has given to you and that you have nourished and treated with care and grew and strengthened by your reading the word. And we're going to see next week Daniel reading the Bible. So, if Daniel is going to read a prophet, maybe it's a good idea for us to read the scriptures. And he's going to give us, by implication, an excellent way to pray. But Daniel understood it was God's plan, even if he didn't understand everything about it. And if Daniel, who was given the vision, didn't understand everything about it, then it would be presumptuous of me to say that I know everything that's in it. But I do know there's enough there to strengthen our faith and to give us a roadmap of what is going to happen in the future. So that when those things happen, we won't. Be shaken. We will be concerned. We may be even sickened by what may happen, but our faith will not be shaken.